Welcome to The Site of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Lesnetsky Guy and Law, and each week I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's decisions coming out of the six Florida District Courts of Appeal and the Florida Supreme Court, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of The Site of the Crime. All right, welcome back to The Site of the Crime. We have eight cases to talk about this week in our Florida criminal law update for the week of January 16th through the January 20th, 2023. And there were, again, no uh, cases out of the brand new 6th DCA um, and none out of the 3rd or the 1st. No cases from the uh, Florida Supreme Court uh, either. So we had three cases from the Second Dis- District Court of Appeals, um, two from the Fourth, and one from the Fifth. We're going to have a discussion about uh, a lot of different issues today, uh, including alligator eggs, edited facial tattoos, lesser included offenses, Zoom hearings, lack of remorse at sentencing, and more. So let's get started. All right, our first case today is Beasley v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released January 20th, 2023. And Beasley is a quirky little case out of DeSoto County about the laundering of alligator eggs and the RICO statute. Who knew that was a thing? The Florida Fish and Wildlife was running an undercover operation to expose the illegal harvesting and sale of alligator eggs. Mr. Beasley worked for a Robert Albritton, an alligator egg harvester, and Mr. Albritton had a license and permit to collect alligator eggs on certain public and private lands. Mr. Albritton was accused of collecting eggs on properties not covered by the permits, during times not covered by the permits, and collecting eggs in certain times without permits. And it was all part of a conspiracy where he and others, including Mr. Beasley, was collecting as many alligator eggs as possible to sell to an alligator farm in Louisiana for as much profit for Mr. Albritton as possible. Mr. Beasley was charged with conspiracy to commit racketeering and possessing or capturing alligators or alligator eggs. He was convicted after a trial and sentenced to 11 months and 29 days in jail, which was a downward departure. On appeal, Mr. Beasley argued that the evidence wasn't sufficient to convict him for the conspiracy charge because theft of alligator eggs is not a qualifying predicate offense. And the second DCA agreed with him. The only problem is that the court did find that there was another predicate offense that was proven. Conspiracy to commit racketeering requires that the defendant know of the overall objectives of the criminal enterprise and agree to further its purpose, or the defendant personally must commit at least two predicate acts or offenses. Theft, which is an enumerated predicate offense, wasn't a proper predicate offense in this case because you cannot steal alligator eggs. They're not owned by private individuals or by the state, and therefore they are not the property of another, as is required under the theft statute. And the conspiracy statute doesn't list illegal harvesting of alligator eggs as a predicate offense. At least, it didn't at the time of Mr. Beasley's offense. But the state alleged and proved that Mr. Albritton committed forgery during the conspiracy, and therefore forgery, which is an enumerated predicate offense under the conspiracy statute, served as a proper predicate act here. 
The forgeries came from Mr. Albritton falsifying documents to represent that the eggs came from lands covered by the permits, when in fact they did not. And the evidence established that Mr. Beasley was aware of the forged documents because he was the one that transported the eggs with those forged documents. Therefore, the evidence was sufficient to prove Mr. Beasley committed conspiracy. So Mr. Beasley next argued that the jury instructions were incomplete, misleading, and confusing because they didn't address the Florida Fish and Wildlife licensing and permit regulations that Mr. Beasley was accused of violating. Mr. Beasley argued that the second DCA's decision in Nichols v. State was controlling. But the second DCA distinguished Nichols, finding that the trial court in Nichols did give instructions regarding an administrative code, but then failed to provide the important part of that code, quote, unless authorized, end quote, which then provided an incomplete, misleading, and confusing explanation of the law. Here, Mr. Beasley did not request a jury instruction explaining any licensing or permit rule at the trial level, so the trial court didn't give any instructions on them, and therefore the instructions were not misleading or incomplete. In other words, if he didn't ask for the instructions, he can't complain. If he had asked for the instructions on on the permitting rules and the trial court then provided them, but those instructions were incomplete, then he would have a viable appellate issue. So 0 for 2, Mr. Beasley then turned to his third argument, that section 379.409, the alligator egg statute, is preempted by section 379.3751, subsection 4, another alligator egg statute. But Mr. Beasley didn't raise this issue at the trial court level because he argued a due process violation from a conflict in those two statutes, but never said the words preemption. The appellate courts are really tough on this issue preservation issue. But regardless, the second DCA said, hey, there can be two statutes regulating the same conduct, no problem. Many statutes overlap and vary their penalties. And multiple sentences are even allowed for conduct arising from the same incident. It is within the prosecutor's discretion to decide which statute to use. So Mr. Beasley's preemption argument also failed. Mr. Beasley next argued that Section 379.409 is unconstitutional because it is an improper delegation of the legislature's power to Florida Fish and Wildlife. This is an interesting issue that is being litigated in courts all around the nation up to the U.S. Supreme Court on various delegations of power to administrative agencies. For example, the bump stock cases where ATF, after years of saying bump stocks, did not fall under the federal definition of a machine gun, unilaterally changed its mind and then overnight made bump stocks illegal. Then the Fifth Circuit said, no, you can't do that. Only Congress can do that. But here, the second DCA said no. This was not an improper delegation of power because the legislature didn't give Florida Fish and Wildlife broad policy discretion and Florida Fish and Wildlife cannot determine what acts constitute crimes. It was only given the power to control how permits are issued and rules for the management of alligators and alligator eggs. So section 379.409 is not unconstitutional as an improper delegation of legislative power. So the second DCA next turned to the state's cross appeal. And this is the danger with appealing a sentence. Mr. Beasley was given a downward departure, and now he has lost his appeal. So what if the court determined that the trial court erred in granting the downward departure? It's pretty risky. 
But lucky for him, the second DCA upheld the downward departure. Mr. Beasley's lowest permissible sentence was 22.05 months. The trial court gave him 11 months and 29 days, followed by 10 years probation. The trial court found that Mr. Beasley was a relatively minor participant under section 921.0026, subsection 2B, because it was Mr. Albritton who ran the operation, made the bulk of the profit, and was involved in the fraud and forgery, while Mr. Beasley was described as a worker bee. Because the trial court found that Mr. Beasley was a minor participant as it related to the entire conspiracy, which drove the guidelines, the court granted the downward departure. The state relied on State v. Malici, a 5th DCA case that held that where the defendant who was charged with robbery obtained a fraudulent prescription, was unsuccessful in filling it, drove the co-defendant to purchase a pellet gun, and then drove the co-defendant back to the pharmacy to rob it, in that case, a downward departure was not warranted. The state also relied on State v. Johnson, a second DCA case. That held where a defendant took a check to a bank and attempted to cash it, but the cashier refused. In that case, a downward departure was not warranted. But in that case, the defendant didn't put on any evidence that he was a minor participant. His attorney did argue that there was an uncharged ringleader, and this was part of a, a bigger conspiracy, but an attorney's argument is not evidence. But in Mr. Beasley's case, the evidence was that it was Mr. Albritton who put the operation together. He engaged in most of the trickery and deceit, and he was the one who benefited financially. So in this case, the trial court's determination that a downward departure was warranted was appropriate. So both the state and Mr. Beasley lost on their appellate arguments, and his case remains status quo. Case affirmed. Our second case today is Jimenez Jr. v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released January 20th, 2023. Jimenez is a legal sufficiency of a standard ground motion case. Mr. Jimenez was charged with attempted manslaughter with a firearm. He filed a 3.190 subsection B motion to dismiss, invoking standard ground immunity under section 776.032 and 776.012. Section 776.012 subsection 2 states that a person does not have a duty to retreat if he or she is not engaged in a criminal activity and is in a place where he or she has a right to be. So if you're engaged in a criminal activity or in a place you don't have a right to be, then you have a duty to retreat before using deadly force. Apparently, Mr. Jimenez was carrying a concealed firearm without a license when he used deadly force. So the trial court denied his stand-your-ground motion, finding it legally insufficient because it admitted he engaged in unlawful activity. But the second DCA noted that its precedent has previously rejected this approach in Garcia v. State. Because his motion also alleged that he was unable to retreat or otherwise terminate the encounter before resorting to deadly force, it was legally sufficient to justify an evidentiary hearing. So if a defendant is engaged in a criminal activity, like carrying a concealed firearm, but also alleges that he was unable to retreat due to the circumstances, the trial court cannot summarily deny the motion as legally insufficient. Petition granted. Our 
Our third case today is Walker v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released January 20th, 2023. Walker is a probation revocation case out of Hillsborough County. Mr. Walker entered a negotiated plea to an armed burglary and grand theft case where he would receive five years in prison followed by probation. Years later, Mr. Walker was charged with violating that probation by committing a new armed robbery and aggravated battery with great bodily harm in one case and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon in another case. The probation officer designated him a violent felony offender of special concern. At the revocation hearing, Mr. Walker's attorney notified the court that a motion to suppress was filed in the new cases. But that motion to suppress had not reached the docket yet, and it wasn't filed in the violation of probation case at all. Mr. Walker argues on appeal that the trial court should have heard the motion to suppress before beginning the violation of probation hearing. But the second DCA held that the trial court did not err because no motion was filed in the violation of probation case. Mr. Walker did not ask for a hearing on the motion to suppress in that case. The motion was filed in the new cases the day before the VOP hearing, and it hadn't reached the docket by the time of the VOP hearing. Also, the motion addressed an out-of-court identification. And the point of excluding an out-of-court identification is to call into question the witness's ability to identify the defendant in the courtroom. But where a victim's in-court identification is based on independent recollection and is uninfluenced by any defective pretrial identification, the court will assume that the in-court identification is not biased by the out-of-court identification defect. In other words, it doesn't matter how messed up the out-of-court identification was if the witness knows the person from previous encounters. For example, if the police conduct a lineup of a husband in a domestic battery case and the husband is 6'5 and all the other people in the lineup are 5'4, that's not going to taint the wife's in-court identification of her own husband. Here the victim testified that he knew who Mr. Walker was, had seen him several times before, and he was 100% sure it was him. Oh, and by the way, the trial court later heard the motion to suppress in the new cases and denied it. So any error would be harmless. So Mr. Walker next challenged the trial court's VFOSC designation, the Violent Felony Offender of Special Concern. Not because this new offense didn't qualify, but because the trial court failed to make written finding as, as to whether he posed a danger to the community which is required under section 948.06, subsection 8E1. The state conceded the error, but asked the second DCA to remand only for a conforming written order and not for an entire new resentencing. The state relied on State v. McRae, where the second DCA held that a trial court's oral pronouncement that the defendant was a danger to the community substantially complied with the statute. The second DCA said, no way in this case. Section 948.06, subsection 8E, imposes minimum sentencing requirements if the VFSOC is found to be a danger to the community. In McRae, the trial court orally addressed the statutory requirements, but here the trial court's oral pronouncement did not address any of those requirements. So the second DCA remanded for another sentencing hearing. Case affirmed in part, reversed in part, and remanded. Our fourth case today is Arnold v. State. 
This is a Florida 3rd DCA case that was released January 18th, 2023. And Arnold is another Zoom hearing case out of Miami-Dade County. Mr. Arnold pled guilty to various counts of battery, aggravated battery, and grand theft of a vehicle. While serving three years of probation, Mr. Arnold was violated for committing second-degree murder and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He moved to suppress his videotape sworn statement to police, but the trial court denied that motion. Mr. Arnold had a VOP hearing and was found in violation. The trial court scheduled his sentencing hearing, and Mr. Arnold filed a written objection to remote sentencing. The trial court overruled the objection and held the sentencing hearing over Zoom, where everyone appeared via Zoom. Mr. Arnold and his attorney were at two different locations. Mr. Arnold's attorney again objected at the sentencing hearing on procedural due process grounds. The trial court sentenced Mr. Arnold to a total of 20 years in prison. As an initial matter, the court determined that the admission of Mr. Arnold's videotape sworn statement was harmless error, if it was error at all, based on the other evidence submitted in the case which included testimony from the victim's girlfriend that Mr. Arnold had a gun and got into an argument with the victim at the time of the shooting, testimony from the victim's brother who saw Mr. Arnold with a gun, heard a dispute between Mr. Arnold and his brother, and then heard a gunshot, and Mr. Arnold said, that's what you get. And Mr. Arnold fled the scene, and the person Mr. Arnold claimed was a shooter tested negative for gunshot residue. So based on all of that evidence, the court found that the admission of the sworn statement was a harmless error. So as for the remote sentencing hearing, a defendant generally has a due process right to be physically present in the courtroom at a sentencing hearing. This sentencing hearing occurred during the Florida Supreme Court's administrative order suspending physical presence requirements, but that order specifically stated that the trial court must consider the constitutional rights of the defendant, among other people. So the trial court was required to balance Mr. Arnold's due process rights against the public health concern. The trial court stated that it didn't see anything unique about Mr. Arnold's case, but that isn't the standard. The trial court should have made express findings specific to Mr. Arnold. So this case was affirmed in part, reversed in part, and remanded. Our fifth case today is Otero Rosario v. State, and this is a third DCA case that was released January 18, 2023. Otero Rosario is a probation violation case out of Miami-Dade County, and Mr. Otero Rosario argued on appeal that the trial court failed to conduct a proper Nelson inquiry before allowing him to represent himself. The state failed to offer competent substantial evidence of a willful violation of probation, and remand is necessary for entry of a written probation revocation order. So as for the Nelson hearing, the third DCA held that it was adequate because Mr. Otero Rosario only made generalized grievances and never requested that his counsel be replaced. And a Nelson inquiry is not required when a defendant wants to represent himself. It determines whether current counsel is ineffective and whether appointing other counsel is warranted. So no Nelson hearing was required in this case. As for the sufficiency of the evidence, the record showed that Mr. Otero Rosario failed to appear for a court-ordered mental health evaluation, and the trial court was within its discretion in determining that it was willful ignorance 
on Mr. Otero Rosario's part, rather than an inept attempt to comply. But the court did remand for trial uh, for the trial court to enter a written probation revocation order. So there is that, small victories. Affirmed in part and remanded. Our sixth case today is Courts v. State. This is a Florida 4th DCA case that was released January 18, 2023. Courts is a 3.850 motion case out of Broward County. Mr. Courts argues on appeal that the trial court erred in denying his 3.850 motion, which alleged that his attorney was ineffective for failing to object to a jury instruction listing aggravated battery with a deadly weapon as a lesser included offense of attempted first degree murder. And here the state conceded because the amended information didn't allege that Mr. Koritz used a deadly weapon. So the third DCA agreed and reversed and remanded. Our seventh case today is Sibron v. State. This is a Florida fourth DCA case that was released January 18, 2023. And Sibron is a remand case from the Florida Supreme Court out of Martin County. The Florida Supreme Court quashed the 4th DCA's original opinion and remanded for reconsideration in light of the Florida Supreme Court's decision in Davis v. State. In the original Sibron decision, the 4th DCA held that the trial court could not consider a defendant's lack of remorse at a sentencing hearing. In that decision, the 4th DCA noted that it was bound by its prior precedent which held that a court cannot consider a defendant's protestations of innocence or failure to show remorse in determining what sentence to impose. Well, the Florida Supreme Court changed all of that in Davis v. State, which held that in a non-capital case, the trial court can consider a defendant's failure to accept responsibility at a sentencing hearing. So defendants be warned, if you do not accept responsibility and show remorse at the sentencing hearing, The trial court can now use that against you to increase your sentence. Case affirmed. Our eighth and final case today is Bowen v. State. This is a Florida 5th DCA case that was released January 20th, 2023. And Bowen is a 3.850 case involving edited photo lineups out of Marion County. In Mr. Bowen's case, law enforcement created a photo lineup where they edited the photos to make every person have a black shirt, and they removed a facial tattoo and scar on Mr. Bowen's face in the photograph. The state argued that this was done to make sure each person was more consistent with each other, and that it would be difficult to find enough people who had similar facial tattoos and scars. It does beg the question why they couldn't superimpose Mr. Bowen's facial tattoo and scar on all the other photos, but I digress. Mr. Bowen filed a 3.850 motion, arguing that his trial counsel was ineffective for not objecting to the photo lineup. The trial court denied the motion, finding that the lineup was not overly suggestive, and there was other evidence that the jury could rely on to determine guilt. On appeal, the 5th DCA agreed with the trial court's finding that any motion to exclude the photo lineup would have been denied, so trial counsel was not ineffective for failing to file a meritless motion. Case affirmed. 
And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Lesnetsky Guy on Law, and this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to the Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the show notes for links to each case and for a link to the written case summaries. If you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to shoot me an email at jeremy at lglawflorida.com. See you next time at the site of the crime.